Well, good morning again. As I said earlier, today is the big day as we're launching a new semester of Synergy Groups. And so along those lines, I want to share kind of a standalone message today. If you haven't been with us in the past, typically what I try to do is, is I like to camp out for a couple of weeks on either a topic or a passage so that we can get uh, as much as we can out of that topic or passage. So we typically do series, whether they're four, six, eight-week series, somewhere in there. Um, but today I want to do a standalone message, but uh, before I jump into the message, let me point out that next week we're starting a brand new series. Um, and it's going to be a great series for you to invite people in your life who may not love church, who may not be followers of Christ. And it's a message, it's a series called God of the Underdogs. And what we're going to be looking at is how we can have success in life in spite of any excuses that we may tend to hold on to. We're going to look at some stories in Scripture of unlikely people uh, who were successful or experienced great things through God and overcome some excuses in their lives. And so make sure you're here next Sunday for God of the Underdogs and invite someone, bring someone with, with you. But today I want to do just a standalone message, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter number 14, if you have a Bible, and we're going to be looking at a familiar passage of Scripture that you've likely heard before if you've been around church, but I want us to kind of ask ourselves um, one question toward the end of our time today that will hopefully help us experience more uh, from Christ and from church and help us to experience more uh, from the love of Jesus than we ever have before. So Matthew chapter number 14, starting in verse number 22, the context of this story takes place just after an incredible miracle that Jesus performs where he took a few, smith, a few fish and a few small loaves and he fed 5,000 uh, men plus women and children um, and then had more food left over than when he started. An incredible, incredible miracle that his disciples experienced. And then starting in verse number 22, this is what Matthew says. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when an evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus has just performed this incredible miracle. He tells his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of the sea, that he would stay back and meet up with them later. In the meantime, he dismisses the crowds. He goes to a mountainside. He begins to pray by himself. When evening comes, he's alone, and the disciples are in a boat. Verse number 24. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So the disciples are in this boat. Jesus sends them ahead. It's now nighttime. Winds are blowing. Waves are crashing against the boat. Verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night or just before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, if you've heard this story before, if you've read this story before, this seems like just a commonplace detail, but this is pretty miraculous in itself that Jesus was walking on water out to a boat that was a considerable distance away from him at night, in the midst of heavy winds and raging seas, Jesus goes walking out to the disciples on the water. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. As if it weren't enough for there to be waves crashing against the boat, winds to be pushing against the boat, they see a figure walking on the water. Now, why do they think it's a ghost? Well, how many people do you see walking on the water in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm, right? So this figure is now walking towards them on a storm, and they're terrified. Crazy conditions, and here's this figure. I mean, it's a ghost. They're like crying out in fear. 
And Jesus, verse number 27, immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's nothing to fear. I know it's a little windy. I know there's lots of waves. And I just came walking out here on top of the water. But you've got nothing to be afraid of. It's me. Now, you may be one to take someone's word for something, but I'm the type of person that wants some proof, right? Sure, that's you. You're saying that you're Jesus and you're walking on the water. That's pretty crazy. Verse number 28. Listen to Peter. I love Peter. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Okay, so 12 disciples in a boat, in a storm, at night, a figure walks out on the water. That's not natural. It doesn't happen. So they think it's a ghost. They're terrified. The ghost speaks to them and said, hey, it's me, it's Jesus. Nothing to be afraid of. You know, why are you so afraid? As if this is something normal. Okay, now Peter decides to be the one to speak up. He's the one that speaks up out of the crowd. He's not afraid to say what's on his mind. In fact, a lot of times when he speaks, he speaks before he thinks, and sometimes he acts before he thinks. And so Peter is just kind of a loose cannon in some regards. But he says to Jesus something that I find extremely, extremely interesting. He says, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. Now, why do I find that interesting? Because logically speaking, if it were me... In the middle of a raging sea, in the middle of a storm, lots of wind, and this figure claiming to be Jesus is walking on the water. If I want to know if it's truly Jesus, I'm saying, well, if it's you, Jesus, what's my birthday? What did we have for supper last night? You know, where are we going, right? I want some information to be able to identify you truly know me. You are who you say you are. Like, tell me something about my childhood that no one would know but you. Like, if you're really Jesus, like, we're close, you should be able to tell me something. But, G- but Peter, he kind of bypasses logic there, and he says to this figure who claims to be Jesus walking on the water, yeah, well, well if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. Like, come out on the water? Well, you can't figure out who it is just by asking a different type of question? That's Peter, though. He's like... If that's really you and you really can't walk on the water, he's not like scared anymore. He's like, dude, that's awesome. Let me come out there. I want to try that. If it's you, tell me to come out. He's just seen Jesus do a miracle. He's seen Jesus do other miracles. If that really is Jesus and he's walking on the water, Peter's mindset is, I want to experience that. It's not enough just to see it. It's not enough to witness it. It's not enough to say I was there. I want to be out there with you, Jesus. Isn't that a great approach to have in a relationship with the creator of the world? Like, I want to experience the moments with you. I don't want to just see them. I don't want to just hear about them. I don't want to just observe them. I want to be a part of them. That's what I love about Peter. Tell me to come out there. And so Jesus, in verse number 29, simply says, come. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. There's 11 other disciples, none of which asked to experience what Jesus was involved in, but Peter was daring enough, he was risky enough, he, he was courageous enough to say, if that's really you, let me be part of it. Invite me to come out on the water. And when Jesus says, does, just says come, Peter's the one that gets out of the boat and literally begins to walk on the water toward Jesus. Can you imagine that? Imagine what the other disciples were like. Dude, are you crazy? Don't get out of the boat. Are you nuts? He just throws caution to the wind. He's walking on the water. Something that he would have never experienced in his lifetime. 
a man who had been on water for most of his life. This was a fisherman by trade who left fishing to follow Jesus. He had been on water. He had never seen a human being walking on water. That doesn't happen. And in the moment, he says, if that's really you, tell me to come out there. Don't just prove yourself to me by some knowledge, something that I can ascertain. Prove it to me by inviting me to come out there. I want to participate in this miracle. He gets out of the boat. He starts walking towards Jesus. And you can just imagine like how pumped up he must be. And then life happens like it does for all of us. Verse number 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. His surroundings took his focus off of Jesus. And as a result, he began to sink. See, when your focus is on Jesus, you experience some incredible things in this life. As soon as your focus gets distracted and you begin to observe things around you, things that tell you not only should you not be walking on water, this isn't natural, but there's a lot of wind, there's a lot of waves crashing around you. This is dangerous. And reality set in, and a man who's walking on the water takes his focus off of Jesus, and he begins to say, this is not good. And he begins to sink, and he cries out like he should have, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? I've often wondered, why would Jesus use those words to rebuke a man who lost focus when he was the only one of 12 willing to even get out of the boat? I mean, you talk about having a little bit of faith. I mean, he got out of the boat, he walked on water. And now you're saying, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He basically was saying, you can always trust and depend on me, but you've always got to stay focused on what's most important in the moments even when they get crazy. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And I can hear Peter saying, well, that's just great. After we're in the boat, the wind dies down. Thanks, Jesus. It would have been a lot easier for me to have faith in you if everything was perfect and the sea was calm. But he had experienced a miracle that no one else had experienced. In verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Because of Peter's audacious faith, because of his radical request, because of his daring willingness to get out of the comfort of any type of safety in the midst of a storm, he abandoned all of that. He risked everything to get into the sea. He walked on water. And as a result, when they got back into the boat, the rest of the disciples worshipped God and said, truly you are the Son of God. I think the pinnacle of all of our lives is having an experience with Jesus that not only impacts us, but leads the people around us to worship Jesus, to give glory to God, to realize that through my life, you can see God working and doing something in me. And it all started with the step. It wasn't enough for him just to say, if it's really you, tell me to come out on the water. When Jesus said, come, he still had a choice to make. And this wasn't just a flippant choice. This wasn't just a decision on a whim. This was a man facing threatening danger who decided to leave security and chase after Jesus. 
And you know, there are some times in our life that Jesus calls us to come into uncomfortable situations, situations that seem a little risky, situations that would cause a little fear, that, that get us out of the boat, meaning our sphere of comfort, our safety zone, if you will. And sometimes following Jesus requires us to take a step away from what we've grown to love, away from what we've grown comfortable with, and head into some uncertain waters. If you truly want to experience all that Christ has for you, you've got to take a step. You've got to get out of a boat. And I want to share with you three steps in the remainder of our time together that I think would be great for you to take. And these are invitations. And as you hear me talk about these three steps over the next few moments, I want to ask you to reflect and ask yourself with just an attitude before God that says, God, if you're telling me to come, I want to be courageous enough to take a step. I want you to speak to my heart in the next few moments. And if you want me to leave the boat in any of these areas that we're about to talk about, then I want you to give me the boldness and the courage to leave that comfort and to take a step and to walk towards you. Now, our church has a mission. And the mission is to make Christ known in the lives of people far from God. And a lot of people take that mission statement to mean that all we care about is for people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus by having an experience called salvation, by which we place our faith in Jesus and accept the free gift that God gave for us when his son Jesus died on the cross for our sins and took our place, and he died so that we could live. And, and kind of the connotation is, well, that's where it stops. That's all you care about, and that's, that's further from the truth than you could ever imagine. Because our goal is for everyone in our church to not only accept Christ, but to continue to grow in their faith, to develop and become mature followers of Jesus who understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so everything that we do, whether you understand the intentionality of it or not, everything that we do is with the purpose of leading people to take steps steps out of some comfort zones, steps out of some securities, some steps out of some areas that may cause you to be a little fearful, but steps that will lead you closer to experiencing Jesus. And we offer a lot of different steps, but I want to talk about three of them for the next few moments. And again, you're simply asking yourself, Jesus, if you want me to take this step, tell me to come. With a willing heart saying, we're going to be a church that responds to you and will take steps. Here's the first step. The first step is water baptism. As we as a church believe that water baptism is a step of obedience, it's a step of faith towards following Jesus, it's a step that comes after trusting in Jesus for salvation. 27 times in the book of Acts alone, we see someone getting baptized. Jesus' final words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 21 uh, in Matthew chapter 28, was to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them, speaking of water baptism, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus himself was baptized. This isn't simply a tradition that belongs to any certain denomination. This is a step towards growing in your faith that we believe every believer is called to take. So, 
If you're here today and you've never been water baptized, you don't know what it means and you don't understand it, I want to give you just a few details about water baptism to help you understand a step that you could take today if you've never been water baptized. In Acts chapter number 8, verses 12 and 13, we see Philip and Simon getting baptized. In Acts chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, we see Philip approach an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot who's reading the scriptures and doesn't understand what he's reading. And Philip goes and asks if he can explain what he's reading, and he does so. And the eunuch believes, and as they're going down the road in this chariot, the eunuch identifies there's a, a river, there's a body of water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip gets out of the chariot and goes down into the water and baptizes him. In Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18, we see the apostle Paul got baptized. He was Saul before his conversion, and he was going to persecute the church in Damascus and on the road. He had an experience by which God blinded his eyes, and he had a conversion experience. He was taken to the, man, the home of a man named uh, Ananias, and after Ananias laid hands on him and prayed for him, it says they got up and he was baptized. It's not just a tradition, not just something that's optional. This is something that we read about as a regular experience in the New Testament. Romans chapter number 6 helps us identify what baptism is and why it is important for us as believers. Romans chapter 6 verse number 4, we were Therefore, buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, water baptism is not about salvation as much as it's about identification. See, some people believe that if you're not water baptized, then you're not truly saved. And um, I don't really find evidence of that in Scripture, even though there is uh, a strong urge that Christians should be baptized. You take the thief on the cross, for example, that died next to Jesus, who Jesus says, I'll remember you today in paradise. I don't think that he was able to get down and get baptized before he died, but he could still be in heaven. I believe that he is. It's not about salvation as much as it's about identification. That just as Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, when we're baptized in water, we identify with Jesus' sacrifice that our old self, when we go under the water, we are dead to our old self. And when we come up out of the water, we're raised to new life in Christ. It's symbolic of the old self passing away, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, and all things being made new. That we're identifying publicly that we've accepted Jesus personally. And it's an outward expression of something that Jesus has done inwardly. Uh, we don't believe that it's optional for a believer, but we believe that it's a step of instruction that Scripture would give us. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, after Peter stood up in front of uh, the masses and 3,000 people believed on Jesus, Scripture says that he gave them instructions to go and be baptized. Following that event, it's not about traditions that are set by man. There are different denominations that approach baptism in different ways. There are some that sprinkle. There are some that uh, do infant um, baptisms. But we believe that the Greek word in the New Testament that's used for baptize or baptize is the word baptizo, which means to be fully immersed. And so we baptize with full immersion, meaning you go all the way under the water. And we believe that baptism is subsequent to salvation. 
that after you make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you get water baptized to identify and to publicly profess your faith in Jesus. I've been asked from time to time by someone who may have been baptized when they were a child, do I need to get baptized again? And I ask them about their experience, and I say, had you made a decision to follow Jesus? Has you, have you accepted Christ before you were baptized? And they were like, you know, sometimes they'll say, no, I was just a child, and my parents told me it was something that I should do, and so I did that, and um, um, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. And I'll tell them, well, we believe that baptism is something that should take place after conversion. So if you're here today and you say, I've placed faith in Christ, I've made a decision to follow Jesus, I've accepted him as my Savior, then the step for you would be a step to get water baptized. And for some people, that's a fearful step. You don't like to be in front of people. In addition to that, we asked people who get baptized at Synergy to record a brief video just telling their story of how they came to Christ. Because we believe that your story has an impact on someone else. And what greater time for you to share your story than a, one of the greatest defining moments in your life as a believer. And so some people are like, you know, I don't know about the video thing. And we've had people that we've baptized that were just so afraid to do a video that I just asked them to type out a script and I read their story. But we think that that's an important part of baptism is that you share your story with people. You never know how your story can impact someone else's life. And so if you're here today, you would say, I've never been water baptized, but I've made a decision to accept Jesus as my Lord. Then that might be a step for you, where Jesus may be saying to you, come out onto the waters. And literally, he's saying, I would like for you to follow through with water baptism. And if that's you on your connection card, there's an option for you to select, I want to be baptized. And we would love to get you information to make that happen so that you can take that step. But it's a step of faith and it's a step of obedience. But it's a step that helps you experience more of what Christ has for you by getting out of the comfort of your current circumstances and making a step toward Christ. The second step, honestly, is a little more uncomfortable for some people. And I completely understand why. Because it's a step of giving. And by giving, I mean financial. Like you give money to God through your local church. I've come to a place in my life through reading scripture and all the scriptures that teach about how we should be generous and it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I've come to understand that giving is more of a spiritual decision and less of a money decision. It's less of a financial decision to be generous, and it's more of a spiritual decision. And the reason I say that is because in Matthew chapter number 6, Matthew tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And then he goes on in verse number 24 to say, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he makes this statement, You cannot serve both God and money. What is Matthew saying here? He's saying money can be a competitor to God in your life, and you can't serve both. Well, if you can't serve both and you don't want money to be a God, one of the easiest ways to keep money from becoming a God in your life is to give it away. Is to give it away. And the Bible teaches a principle of a tithe, which means that of our increase, of our uh, money that we receive, that we give the first 10% to the Lord through the local church that we belong to. And that's kind of the standard of giving. And for many people, that doesn't seem like a wise financial decision. 
Someone who is financially wise, according to the world standards, would say giving away 10% of your money is not a great financial decision. And I would probably agree with that in those terms. In fact, I had a conversation with a wealthy individual as we were starting the church, and I was having a conversation with him with regards to raising money because we needed money to start the church. And, and I was just asking him, you know, I understand that you raise a lot of money. Are there any, any pieces of advice that you would give me? And, and basically his take on the matter was, the way I understand it, people in the church rely on people to give 10% of their income to the church, and that's how money is given to the church. And I said, well, yes, sir, that's, that's kind of how the, the Bible teaches that the house of God is provided for by people giving a tithe of their income. And he says, you know, basically good luck to you because I would never give 10% of my money away. That's just not wise financially for me to give away 10. That's a lot of money for this individual. You know, when I was, when I was younger and, and I would get $10 as an allowance, and my parents would encourage me to give $1 to the church as a tithe. That didn't seem like a big deal. But then as I got jobs that paid more money, that $1 when that $1 turned into 10 or into 100 or into 1,000, it seemed like, you know, it seemed like that's, that's kind of harder to let go of than that $1. But the principle is the same. So everything that we have materially, financially, comes from God. He ultimately owns everything. And we're just stewards or managers of what God has blessed us with. And all he asks is that we return 10% to him by way of the tithe through the local church. God's economy is a little different from our world's economy. 10% given to God leaves 90% blessed, which I believe is greater in God's economy than 100% that's not blessed by God. And so, for some of you, maybe you don't give financially. And maybe a step for you would be to give something to your church. For some of you, maybe you give something, but you don't really give regularly. And maybe for you, a step would be to begin to give a percentage of your income. Maybe you give 1% of your income or 2% of your income. For some of you, maybe you give regularly a percentage of your income. And maybe for you, Jesus was saying, would you give me a tithe? Would you give me 10% of your income? You say, well, I don't really know how we'll make it if we do that. And that's the beauty of tithing, is that we give to God first and then we have to trust him. We have to stay focused on him for the remainder of the life in the month or the week or however often we get paid. There's really no other tangible way that helps us more greatly experience God's provision and builds our faith than giving him the first 10% of our income and trusting him to bless the 90%. And I can just tell you, after learning to tithe from a kid, I've never seen God not provide for my family. Even in moments where God called us to step out and start a church and our finances went way down, I've always seen God be faithful because I believe that he blesses the 90% if we're faithful with the 10%. So the question for you is simply, is God asking you to take a step by giving financially? And if so, there's giving envelope in your seat. If you're married, I would encourage you to make sure you talk to a spouse before you start doing something that you feel like God's calling you to do. You can take the giving envelope home with you. It's posted, it's paid. If you decide to give, you can send it in the mail. There's instructions on there to give online, which most of our church does. It helps you give regularly and faithfully. But I'm simply asking you to ask a question 
is God asking me to take a step so that I can experience more of him by getting out of some comfort zones and trusting him and keeping my eyes focused on him. You say, well, the church must not be able to meet the bills right now. He's up there talking about money. It's not the case. I'm not up here telling we, you we need your money because our church isn't going to make it. I want you to grow in your faith. And if I didn't teach you the biblical principles of giving and generosity, I believe that I wouldn't be leading you towards maturity in Jesus. The third step that I want to talk about has to do with why today is such a big day in the life of our church, and it's a step to join a group. A step to join a group. We've never had an intention to simply gather people on a Sunday morning and that be the extent of our church experience. We believe that no matter how many people show up on a Sunday morning, the measure of the success of our church is how many people are gathering throughout the week in homes or at restaurants or in locations outside of the church to build relationships and encourage and strengthen one another through groups. Acts chapter number 20, verse number 20. Luke tells us, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. This is Peter speaking. Publicly and from house to house. We shouldn't just meet in homes and not gather publicly, and we shouldn't just meet publicly and not gather outside of that. Publicly and from house to house, we should have an experience inside our church family by which we're encouraging one another and strengthening one another. Acts chapter number 2, verse 46, after on the day of Pentecost, after the Lord added miraculously 3,000 people to the church in one day, it says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. You think meeting on Sundays once a week is a pretty big commitment, right? They were meeting publicly together in the temple courts every day. But it also says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The extent of the early church's involvement together was never simply a public gathering. It was always a private or it was always a smaller, personal, relationship-driven experience in addition to a public gathering. And we think that groups are the best way for you to get connected. That it's easy for you to attend church on a Sunday and never really get connected relationally and miss out on something that Jesus wants you to experience. But for 10 to 12 weeks, if you'll commit to joining a group, and you'll commit to being part of that group, weekly if it meets weekly, every other week if it meets every other week, and do life together, we're better together that you can encourage someone else that needs you, and you can be encouraged by someone else that you need. And this simple commitment, though it gets you out of the comfort of your schedule, I know that we're all busy and we have chaotic schedule and the winds and the waves are blowing, but for us to stay focused, it's important for us to take a step and say, for the next 12 weeks, I'm going to join a group. We've got different types of groups. All the groups don't look alike. There are groups that are Bible study driven for co-eds, for women, for men. There are groups that are just more relational driven where families with young kids can get together and eat meals in each other's homes and encourage one another, where groups of men can get together and eat breakfast. Students can gather here at the rec department, have a large group time of fun and break into age-specific groups to develop relationships but it's through these groups that our church is cared for, that you have a sense of belonging, 
that you find a place where you really fit in in the life of our church. And it's a step. Sometimes it's a step of uncertainty. You don't really want to go to someone's house for a small group meeting when you don't really know that person. You don't really want to have to clean your house very thoroughly once a week because people are going to come to your house (laughs) for a small group meeting. It stretches us. But it's through that stretching that we reach greater potential in Jesus and experience more in him. If you ever go through a difficult situation, it's great to have people who'll call you on the phone, who'll send you a text message, who'll send you an email and just say, I'm praying with you, I'm praying for you. Is there anything I can do for you? Who'll bring you a meal at a time where you really just need a meal. You don't need to be focusing on preparing a meal. That's what groups are designed for. It's not simply discipleship-driven where you learn more knowledge about Jesus, but it's relational-driven where you grow to love people in your church and belong together in healthy biblical community. Will you take a step? Is Jesus asking you to take a step to commit to a 12-week semester of relationships in Him? I, I could have talked about a lot of different steps that we offer as a church. Steps to serve Steps to invite, steps to attend, classes that we call a growth track. All steps designed to take us further in our relationship with Jesus. But I just felt this week that these three steps are steps that we as a church need to kind of embrace, especially in this season. So if you're here and you've never been water baptized, simply ask yourself, is Jesus asking me to take that step? If you're here and you don't give financially or if you feel like God's asking you to give more financially, are you willing to take that step? Is he asking you to take that step? If you've never been part of a group or even if you've been part of a group in the past, have you taken a step to join a group? It's risky, but could you potentially get more out of church through those relationships? I know it's difficult, but I'm just asking you, Is Jesus asking you to take a step? And if he is, are you willing to get out of the boat and take that step? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for church and what it means. Thank you for opportunities to grow in our faith. Thank you that we have the privilege of experiencing you, even in circumstances that are sometimes frightening, that cause us to be uncomfortable, that push us beyond our comfort levels and our safety zones. But I pray this morning that you would speak to us clearly, Lord, if you want us to take a step and we'll have the courage to get out of the boat and trust you with that decision. Before we end our time together this morning, I wonder if there's anyone here today who's never made a decision to accept Christ, who's never made a decision to place their faith in him. And today you've heard some of the gospel of how Jesus loved you enough that God sent his son Jesus to this earth and he gave his life for us that we might receive life in him. If you've never made a decision to commit your life to Christ or to accept the free gift of salvation, and that's something that you, that's a step that you want to take today is to surrender your life to him and place your faith in him. No one has to look around, but would you just lift a hand and say, that's me, I want to place my faith in him. I've never made a decision to do that. And this morning, I want to do that. That's awesome. It's great. You can put your hand down. Anybody else? I've never surrendered my life to Christ. I've never invited him to be the Lord of my life. Anybody else? 
Here's what I want to do for those of you who raised a hand. I want to lead you in a prayer. Nothing magical about the prayer. It's just a, a prayer to help you say to God what you want to experience with him personally. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer just to confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life. And you can just say this in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. But if that's you, just repeat this after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you this morning. I invite you to be my Lord and my Savior. Please forgive me of my sins. I commit to live my life for you. I'm getting out of the boat. I'm trusting you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And can we just as a church celebrate today that someone made that decision? That's incredible. That's awesome.